Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Welcome to everybody joining us this evening. I'm Peter Tapsack, uh, Program Director at the ICC. We're going to have a jam-packed whirlwind tour through the Bible, through art, through geography tonight. So uh, we're going to hand it over to Father in just a minute to blow your minds about the Feast of the Transfiguration. Father, why don't I do this? I will read your uh, your introduction and hand it over to you to open us in prayer and then and then be off. Our speaker this evening is our own founding executive director at the Institute of Catholic Culture. Father Hezekiah Carnazzo graduated from Christendom College in 2004 and completed a master's degree in systematic theology with an advanced apostolic catechetical diploma at Christendom's graduate school. In 2009, Father Hezekiah founded the Institute of Catholic Culture and has since served as its executive director. Ordained to the priesthood in 2016, Father Hezekiah has lectured throughout the U.S., is a regular guest on the Sunrise Morning Show, and has appeared on EWTN's Sunday Night Live and Marcus Grody's Coming Home Network. He serves as pastor of St. George Melkite Greek Catholic Church in Sacramento, California, where he lives with his wife, Linda, and their seven children. Please welcome, uh, well, he needs no introduction, I suppose, for those of you who know them, Father Hezekiah Karnazo. Thank you, Peter. Let's um, let's begin in prayer, and then we'll start our Bible study. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Come, let us ascend into the mountain of the Lord, and into the house of our God. And we shall behold the glory of his transfiguration, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. In light, let us receive light, and being raised aloft in spirit, let us praise the consubstantial trinity unto the ages. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, um, we've got a lot to cover tonight, guys. I, I got to tell you that, that I've got a lot of material here. So if I go a little bit fast, I apologize. First of all, all you guys have your Bibles out right here? Because I have to tell you that of all the Bible studies I have done, prepared for over the last probably, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years, this is the most exciting preparation I've done over the past week. Um, and so I'm pretty pumped to be with you and uh, to be sharing with you this beautiful Feast of the Transfiguration, do this study on the Feast itself. Like Sister Angela said, I've been gearing up for about a year for this one. Well, to be honest, I've been gearing up for about 15, 20 years. I've been teaching this Bible study for the past um, for the past, let's see, 23 years. And I will tell you that I threw my notes out. 
And I completely reprepared the whole Bible study because I, my head was blown off as I was studying this stuff for the new, from some new angles. Um, so look, we need to approach this gospel, the transfiguration uh, from in, in two levels. Um, and ultimately there's a third level that we're going to do at the very end, but two levels, one from the historical natural level. Uh, and then of course, raising our eyes to see the whole of the transfiguration from a divine level. But let's just, before we begin, let's just let's start right here by opening our Bibles to Luke chapter nine. We're going to read through the text together so that we're all familiar with where we're at. Okay. Luke chapter nine, verse 28. And of course, the transfiguration is given to us in the synoptic gospels, not in the gospel of John, but in the other three gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we're going to pick, we're going to primarily be looking at Matthew and Luke today, but here, let's just take a look at our bearings in Luke chapter, chapter nine, verse 28, Peter, go ahead. 28 through uh, 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his countenance was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men talked with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, which he was to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but kept awake, and they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is well that we are here. Let us make three booths, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he said this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silence and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Okay, here's so now we have the basic text in front of us, the basic scene that takes place. As I said, we need to begin to enter into this mystery on two levels, a historical kind of natural level and the divine level. Um, and in other words, we need to begin to see. Okay, let me focused on this, in our first our opening section here together. We need to be able to see on two levels, to see what Jesus is doing and what those who are present uh, were meant to see, yeah? Um, and this is the first step in, the, in our study of the transfiguration. It, it, the transfiguration is all about seeing. Jesus, Jesus is transfigured in front of them that they might see, yeah? It's, it's all about the apostles. It's all about us beginning to see and to come to realize through that vision who Jesus really is. And I, I cannot stress this enough, uh, how important this is that we begin to see the transfiguration rather than read it on, on the, in the page of our Bible, okay? Joseph Fitzmaier says this, to understand the importance of this episode, one has to take seriously the context in which it is found. For the episode is related to the disciples seeing the kingdom. And St. Ephraim goes further. He, sa he says, that Christ led the disciples up the mountain of transfiguration to show them that he is God, to show them the glory of the Godhead, and show that he is God, and show them his kingship. Yeah. Um, one modern commentator um, writing on the gospel says this, in writing these things in the way he did, it is the author's intention that we too, his readers, see what has taken place so that our hearts too will be converted. He intends to get his readers 
fully involved in the mystery of Christ, which he presents. So this, this, my brothers and sisters, this is our first step to contextualize the gospel by getting inside the gospel. Yeah. By beginning to see again and to do this, to get involved as, as Hinnabush says, we need to begin to actually by seeing, by knowing where we are and, and what the scene looks like around us. So let's begin by uh, our ascent and by climbing the magnificent mountain of Tabor, up the steep twisting path through a thicket of oaks and pistachio trees to the summit where a view opens upon the east over the Jezreel Valley toward the Sea of Galilee and the River Jordan. Peter, we're going to pull up um, some slides here and share some pictures of this uh, beautiful place. And you should begin the big picture, right? This the Holy Land. Um, you can see the Dead Sea and, and then coming up, um, you can see the Jordan River, the Sea of Galilee. Yeah. And then well, I'm just going to come over to the left. You're going to find Mount Tabor. Okay. There's Mount Tabor. Notice how close Mount Tabor is to Nazareth down south. And then to also to Cana, right? Look right there. It's like, it's like a little triangle. Cana, Tabor, Nazareth are all there. Okay, Peter, we've got another slide there. This is pretty awesome, which is a, a video, uh, a video slide, and it's going to help us um, kind of just, I hope, just kind of build that vision that we need to build here. Um, so, Peter, let's go ahead and take down this map. There you go. Okay, this is your view. Just before we begin this, your view. Go ahead, Peter, and, and hit play on this of Mount Tabor. You can see the Jezreel Valley all around it. It's quite magnificent. Notice that Tabor is an isolated mountain. It's not part of a mountain range. It rises up from the surrounding Jezreel Valley, much like a throne set over the earth. Um, okay, now you can see Nazareth there. Uh, five, it's five and a half miles from Mount Tabor to Nazareth. Um, so, so I, 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 you gotta, you gotta just realize, right? Five and a half miles in those in that world, when you're looking at a magnificent mountain just coming right out of the valley. You can see Tabor from Nazareth. So as Jesus was growing up, no doubt he would have gone there with his friends. No doubt he would have climbed up this mountain. And no doubt they would have recalled the stories of salvation history that took place here. And I do believe that it was as a child that Jesus chose this mountain as he stood on it. Knowing what was coming, knowing what he would do, he told himself this. This is the place where I will be transfigured in front of my closest friends. Okay. Um, Peter, um, uh, the, the next slide there is going to bring up the view from Mount Precipice, which is, which is the view from Nazareth. Okay. So this is, you can see the, well, we're going to bring it up here in a second. There you go. This is, this is the place where the, they were going to throw Jesus off the cliff. Yeah. Um, remember he unrolls the scroll in Luke chapter four and they become infuriated. They take him to a high mountain and throw him off. This is the place where they were going to throw him off. And there you can see Mount Tabor uh, in the distance. Okay, Peter, the next um, the next slide. And I know I keep, well, there you go. There's Mount Tabor, um, uh, Nazareth. Cana is, um, is, like, is like four miles or three and a half miles, I think. So as the bird, as the crow flies, of course, and that's the way Jesus would have gone, not on the modern roads. They would just walked across the fields. Okay, so it's right there. You want to know why Jesus and an apostles were invited to the wedding at Cana? Because they were his neighbors. It's right there. Okay. 
All right, Peter, let's go to the next uh, the next uh, slide, which is another video, which is going to go ahead and take us um, right up the beautiful mountain of Tabor. And I hope this is helpful to you guys. For those that have already been to the Holy Land, maybe you've seen some of these things, but for those that haven't, um, here it is. Now, you can see the the winding road that uh, the, the modern cars take up the mountain. Um, and we're just going to take a moment here, guys, to allow this video to just kind of get our bearings. This is about as close, sister, as I can get you without taking you there, okay? Um, God bless uh, Amy Giuliano and our staff for getting these video clips and taking us. You can start to see now some of the uh, Crusader um, uh, ruins uh, that, that are all around. So if you look into the trees, even over there to the left, to the right, you're going to see you know, chunks of, of rock building that are there. A huge crusader fortress that was built up here. The remnants are still there and you can see them. Um, and then on the top of the mountain, as we kind of enter into, this is the road that heads up to the Latin monastery. Um, but uh, on the top of the mountain, there's two monasteries. Uh, the Catholic monastery, which is straight ahead here, and the Orthodox monastery over there to the left. It's quite beautiful. So, uh, Peter, can we... Can we just stop? Well, thank you for stopping it there. That's perfect. Um, and let's let's take a pause here. Let's go over to the Orthodox Monastery because it is amazing inside. And many, I get, I bet you of our of all of our pilgrims to Holy Land, you're like, I, I don't, I didn't get to go over it unless you came with Father Hezekiah, of course. This is this is this is truly unique. So, Peter, go ahead and hit play there. Um, you you can uh, um, Notice the palm branches over there. We'll talk about the palm branches and the reason why, not just because of Palm Sunday, but that's part of it. It's about all about the study that we're going to be doing today. And then you enter into um, you enter into the uh, the church, which is just absolutely magnificent. It's uh, covered in icons over there. Well, he's going to take us up to the to the roof to the ceiling. You can see it's completely covered in icons. Onto the right hand side, there this little wood shrine. There's a rock there that that of the transfiguration that jesus stood on um and uh yeah it's just absolutely magnificent okay peter that's good let's um let's um go back over to the video then that's going to take us right up uh straight up the road to the roman catholic monastery the franciscan monastery that's there Again, you can see some of those remnants to the right and left of the uh, the ancient Byzantine monastery that's there, or uh, sorry, the Crusader Fortress and the ancient Byzantine monastery, which is the most uh, the earliest uh, established buildings. You can still see chunks of the floor down below as they've done excavations and things like that. For those that have never been to the Holy Land, we're just going to go ahead and enjoy this moment for them. Let them see this for themselves. Again, it's about as close as I can get you. The the building with the red roof and the, the flat roof there are the, the modern Franciscan monastery that's been built there. But then you see um then you see the uh the church of the transfiguration rising up in the highest point, the highest point of the mountain. Beautiful. You can see the Jezreel Valley now. We're gonna be talking about this all around that mountain. Extremely important for the why Jesus chose this spot is that valley down below. It's really from this vantage point that we can begin to see, at least from a natural point of view, the majesty of the transfiguration on Mount Tabor. 
Um, uh, guys, this is this is one way, of course, to see, but we need to go beyond the geography um, uh, to to begin to see the see the Lord there on Mount Tabor. And to do this, we need to go back to the gospel account and get a bit of context. Uh, for it is in the gospel account that we begin to see the reason that Jesus did what he did um, and see the reasons behind the transfiguration. Uh, the, in the gospel, especially of Matthew, but in all the gospels, the question of the kingdom and that of Christ's kingship, the question of whether or not he is the expected Messiah drives the entire story. As, as, as Fitzmaier said in the earlier quote I gave you, to understand the importance of this episode, one has to take seriously the context in which it is found. For the episode is related to the disciples seeing the kingdom. Yeah, not only seeing, but seeing the kingdom. To understand this point, we need to remember that the Jews of Jesus's day were not only under the dictatorship of the Roman Empire. They had been oppressed by foreign powers for over 600 years, yeah? The Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and then finally the Romans. I don't think I need to make this point here at the ICC, but for those that are new, uh, I will simply say this, that there is a serious frustration among the Jews of Jesus's day that drives their expectation for the coming Messiah, and therefore drives the gospel story and the ultimate question about who Jesus is. Will he, will this one that they are following on Galilee, will he be the long-awaited redeemer? Will he be the one to free the people from the foreign oppressors? Thus, the gospel of Matthew opens in its first chapter with the genealogy of Christ. Turn there with me for a moment. Matthew chapter 1. It is, it is for this reason, no doubt, as we will see as the gospel develops, that, uh, that Matthew chooses to place this genealogy right at the very beginning of his gospel, proving the Davidic genealogy of Christ. Notice even in chapter 1, verse 29, talking about St. Joseph, but as he considered this, this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Okay? The whole of the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 is an apologetic to the Jews, defending the fact that Jesus is indeed the son of David. But of course, the genealogy of Christ is placed at the beginning of Matthew's gospel to prove this point to the Jews reading the gospel when it was written, yeah? Probably around 70 AD, okay? But the gospel account itself recounts events and peoples who do not have this benefit. Yeah, you and I sit back, of course, with our, with our, our nicely printed Bibles, receiving Matthew's chapter 1. But the people standing in Galilee, walking with Jesus and wondering who this guy is, asking, is it possible that he is indeed the Messiah, do not have that benefit. So within the gospel stories, we begin to encounter people who are actually wondering, 
Yes? Wondering, is it possible that Jesus is the Christ? Everything Jesus says, everything that he does, is to give them the answer to this question that they are asking. The entire gospel, then, is the story of the unfolding of this revelation, the revealing to those who are following Jesus that, yes, he is indeed the long-awaited Messiah. He is indeed the son of David. But more than that, he is indeed the son of God. Yes, and why is this important? Because one of the primary texts which drove the expectation of the people, it fired the imagination of the Jews at the time of Christ was the prophecy which comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, the great promise that was given to King David before he died. So we're going to turn there. Now flip your Bibles open with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to take a look here at, we're going to begin with verse 8. But, but let me give you, before you start reading that, Second uh, Samuel chapter 7 is, is all about David's plan to build the temple of God. Okay, David has now come in, he's conquered Jerusalem, and he's planning on building the temple. And God says, not so fast, David, for it's not going to be you that builds the temple, it's going to be your son. And here in chapter 7, verse 8, we're going to jump into the middle of this business and pick up the most important uh, part of it. Chapter 7, verse 8, go. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel." and will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, and here's the key, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your father's I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come forth from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. When he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men. Okay, I'm gonna stop you right there. Notice guys, fundamentally important, driving the expectation of God's people, this passage and others, but this is a fundamental one which drives the expectation that when the throne of David is restored, after its fall during the Babylonian exile, the one who is placed upon the throne will be, yes, the son of David, but in some way, somehow, he also will be the son of God. Yeah? This is the reason why the the, the whole of the gospel of Matthew is written as it's written. Turn back to me, Matthew chapter 2. Okay. And I was I was reading this today, and I was like, oh my gosh, Matthew lays this out exactly like Moses lays out Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. In chapter 2 is the creation account, yeah, revealing to us Adam and Eve made in the image and likeness of God. And immediately upon that revelation, chapter 3, the devil's standing there, yeah? Notice in chapter 1, 
the revelation of Jesus as the son of David. And immediately upon that revelation, Herod steps into the scene. And the rest of the gospel will be a battle between these two kings as to who is not only the rightful heir to the throne of Israel, but ultimately the rightful heir to the throne of God. And to add fuel to this fire, as soon as Jesus is baptized, as soon as the Holy Spirit comes down upon him and the Father's voice is heard, Jesus declares the very thing that Herod is dreading. Look at chapter 4, verse 17, the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. Chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach. And what is the central message of his preaching? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is has come. In fact, Jesus is not the first one to announce this. If you go back to Genesis or to, to Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, St. John the Baptist says the th same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Look at, we're just going to scan some verses here so that you can kind of kind of see. This is why highlighters in your Bible are so important, guys. Your Bible should be all marked up and highlighted with red and all this stuff so that your eyes can see these themes coming out. But just look at this with me. Chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 3. Chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 19. Whoever then relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches men, so shall also be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But he who does them and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. Verse 20. For I tell you yourselves, unless your righteousness exceeds the, the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. Chapter 6, verse 33. And I'm skipping all over. Just going to grab a few here. Chapter 6, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom, his kingdom, and its righteousness. Chapter 7, verse 21. Now everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah? Chapter 8, verse 11. I tell you, many will come from east and west and sit at the table of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And then all of a sudden, my brothers and sisters, this is what so you start when you start seeing the, this these the gospel coming alive like this. When you start seeing this theme come forth, and Jesus is is repeating constantly in the face, and you have to realize the Herodians are all around him as he's preaching. Yeah, Herod is has declared himself. Herod has de declared himself to be the Messiah. He believes himself to be the one, or he, he probably doesn't know. He doesn't believe himself. But he's trying to convince people. Yes. And, and suddenly, suddenly the demons themselves cannot remain silent. Look at chapter 8, verse 29. Or verse, we'll go over to verse 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of, of the, the Gerasenes, two demoniacs met him, coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us? Second Samuel 7. What have you to do with us, the Son of God? Chapter 9, verse 27. 
chapter 9, verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us, O son of David. Now, listen, watch how Jesus begins driving this home, okay? Throughout his parables, there is one theme that just keeps just, it's like, a, it's like you know, it's like Genesis chapter one, yeah? And God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was over and over and over again until you can't, you can't get away from it. Look at this in the parables, chapter 13, chapter 13, verse 11, and he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Verse 24, verse 24, another parable he put before them saying, the kingdom of heaven. Verse 31, another parable he put before them saying, the kingdom of heaven. Verse 44, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven. Verse 52. Verse 52. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of... Do you guys see this? He won't stop. He's pounding them over the heads with the same point because the whole of the gospel... The whole of the gospel is about the ultimate question that they are asking. And now, at this point in the gospel, it all comes to the surface. Look at this. As Jesus finishes the parables, verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And they say, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Do you see? They're asking the fundamental question that the gospel author wants all of us to ask. And this is ultimately the fundamental question that Herod himself is asking. Herod is worried, but he is worried about the wrong thing. While he is dreading the possibility that Jesus is announcing that he is the claimant of the throne of Israel, Jesus is about to reveal that he is the claimant to the throne of God. Notice chapter 14, verse 1. Right here, right? The parables happen. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. And then they're asking where he's from. Is not this the one we know? And suddenly Herod comes back on the scene. And ask the same question. Chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. Now, look, Matthew just kind of, just kind of, just goes right to the point, right? But, but, but Luke helps us see a little bit more, okay? Hold your Bibles there in chapter 14, okay? And, and go to the gospel of Luke with me. Luke chapter 9 right before the transfiguration, which begins in Luke on, in verse 28. This is Luke chapter 9, verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done, and he, per, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, John, I beheaded. And here's this question, but who is this about whom I hear so much? Yeah? This is the question, my brothers and sisters, for us too. 
As Hindenbush says in that quote I gave you earlier, in writing these things in the way he did, it is the author's intention that we too as readers see what is taking place so that our hearts too will be converted. He intends to get his readers fully involved in the mystery of Christ, which he presents. And having entered into this story, having gotten involved, if you will, we need to start to look around us and listen not only to the conversation that Jesus is having with the apostles, not only to the parables as reported by Matthew, but we must begin to hear the conversation around the conversation. Jesus has been healing the blind. He's been healing the lame. He's multiplied the loaves and fishes. He's raised the sick from their bed. He's even raised the dead back to life and walked upon the stormy sea. And now the crowds around him are quite perplexed and they're fundamentally divided. For there is on one side of this story, a group of people that have set themselves very much on Herod's side and therefore very much against Jesus, who is the Christ. Turn your Bibles back from Matthew, just one page with me, to or two pages to chapter 12, verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and took counsel against him how to destroy him. Yes, this is one side of those who are standing around him. On the other side are the apostles drawing close to our Lord, Jesus' closest friends. But even the apostles themselves are struggling. They're grappling. They have a hope and expectation. But is this the moment? Is this the one they're waiting for? And so Jesus finally turns to them after all of his preaching, after all of his healings, after all of his miracles, he finally turns to them and confronts the question that has been stirred up within them and forces them to make a decision. Look at Matthew chapter 16. At the, at, as all of this now comes to its conclusion, Jesus finally turns on his heels and looks at his friends and says, what side are you standing on? Are you with the Pharisees? Are you with Herod? Or are you willing to be citizens of the kingdom which I am proclaiming? Chapter 16, verse 1, my brothers and sisters, is so often misread by our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters about Peter. Matthew chapter 16 is not about Peter first and foremost. It is first about Jesus because all good theology and all good biblical scholarship is Christocentric. It is only by knowing who Jesus is that we can then come to understand and appreciate who Peter is. Yes? Chapter 16, chapter 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that the Son of Man is? They say, some John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, yes, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that he is? I cannot stress how important this moment is in the gospel enough. For Peter's answer, the question that, that Jesus is asking calls them to risk everything. To say that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the king in Herod's territory is treason and it warrants death. And much like the tip of Tabor rising up from the Jezreel Valley, so the transfiguration is the tipping point of the gospel. Everything before it leads to it and everything after will flow from it. 
to the passion. It is here at this moment, at this question, that our Bible study must split into two. As I said before, there are two levels to this story, two views of Christ and, and who he is and of, of what he's doing. The historical and natural level, the question of whether he is the king who is to come to, to free them from the Roman oppression, and the divine level, the question of whether he is in fact the son of God. And this question, who do you say that I am, must be proposed. It must be understood on both levels. First, Peter answers, thou art the Christ. But of course, Peter himself is still thinking in earthly terms. Look at, look at, look at verse 22. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid, Lord, right? God forbid that you go to Jerusalem and be crucified. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Peter is still thinking on earthly terms. Yes, Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the long-awaited king. But he is not only the son of David, the king of Israel. So let us lift up our eyes with Peter. And Jesus now leads his closest friends up the mountain to reveal to them exactly what this means. Exactly how they are to see him. And this brings us back, at least for a moment, to geography, to make sure we can get our, our bearings right, right? So, Peter, let's pull up one last time, just a very quick clip over the, uh, the, the, the Mount of Tabor, and to see this beautiful place that Jesus has chosen. Here is the feast, the cloud that Annie was talking about in the pregame discussion that descends every year on this feast of the Transfiguration. And below, of course, is the Jezreel Valley which I'll speak about in a moment. Jesus chose this place for a very important reason. All of the great armies of the world marched through this land, through this valley just below the mountain. The Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans, the greatest army of the world had ever known marched through this valley. In fact, it is believed, it is believed that down in that valley, the archaeological digs that have been that have been done there, that they have discovered the ancient city of Megiddo or Har Megiddo, Mount Megiddo, otherwise known as Armageddon, which the book of Revelation chapter 16 reveals is the place where the final battle for mankind will take place. And it is this site and the memory of the great battles that took place here which is the reason why Jesus ascends there, taking his closest disciples to reveal to them that he, that he is the true king that they expected. Very quickly, just turn your Bibles with me to Judges chapter four. Keep your hand in Matthew, if you will. Judges chapter four. We won't be long here, um, but Judges chapter four. And I want to just give this to you. You can write it down for your own study. And notice uh, in chapter 4, verse 4, Judges chapter 4, verse 4. Now, Deborah the prophetess, the wife of Lapidus, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. The people of Israel came up for her for judgment, and she sent and summoned Barak the son of Abinoam from Kedesh in Naphtali and said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go gather your men to Mount Tabor, 
taking 10,000 of the tribe of Naphtali and the tribe of Zebulun, and I will draw Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you with his troops, and I will give him into your hand. I, I, I leave that. I go back to the Gospel of Matthew. My, my brothers and sisters, this is, this is the story that Jesus would have been reading with his friends on Mount Tabor as a child. This is the story they would have been recalling and remembering how God and his people had been victorious from this place over their enemies. And it was to this mountain, the mountain of the victory of God over his enemies that Christ chose to bring his closest friends, to reveal to them the answer to his own question. Who do you say that I am? Most scholars believe that this is the reason why Luke begins his account as he does. Turn, turn with me to Luke chapter 9 again. Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter, John, and James and went up the mountain. Notice the eight days that Luke points out. Eight days after what sayings? Yeah? Eight, eight days, of course, after the, after the converse, the most important conversation that has taken place. That conversation between Jesus and Peter, in which Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the King that we have been waiting for. And it is for this reason why Peter, up on the mountain, reacts to the mystery of Christ transfigured as he does in verse 33. Verse 33, and as the men were parting from him, Peter said, Master, it is well that we are here. Let us make three booze, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Here, we're going to need to turn to the Old Testament again and to, and to refer back to the festal cycle of the Jews to better understand the context in which Christ is revealing his messianic identity. For there is one feast and one feast only among the Jews that lasts for eight days. And it is the feast within which Peter and virtually all of the church fathers and all modern biblical scholars interpret this entire event. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 23. Chapter 23, verse 33 through 36, Peter. And then we're going to jump to 39 uh, down to the end of the text, okay? And the Lord said to Moses, say to the sons of Israel, on the 15th day of this seventh month, and for seven days is the feast of booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. Seven days you shall present offerings by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present an offering by fire to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall do no laborious work. Skipping down. On the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of goodly trees, branches of palm trees. Remember the palm branches on the monastery over the door? Go ahead, Peter. And willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall keep it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All that are native in Israel shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the sons of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Okay, 
my brothers and sisters, as with all of the feasts of the Jews, the whole Jewish festival cycle is built on layers, okay? The first layer being the natural, the harvest layer, okay? If you understand this, all of these crazy feasts, you're like, I don't understand Sukkoth and all these uh, Passover, what's going on? And, uh, you know, all these things. If you understand this, that there's a natural layer and then there's layers layered on top of it over time, you'll start to understand and break through and understand the festival cycle. The most ancient and basic layer is the harvest layer, the, the, the harvest cycle, the feast of booze was celebrated in the fall, sometime around September, not too long from now. Yeah, um, uh, it was a fall festival. Um, notice notice verse, verse 40, ah, or well, verse 39. On the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, there it is, yes, the fruit of goodly trees, later on, down there in verse 40. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's originally a, a harvest festival. The second layer is the layer that is layered on top of it, and that is the time of the Exodus. The events of the Exodus began to be remembered on these harvest festivals. And you get that again there in verse 42. Come down with me to verse 42. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All that are in the na native in Israel shall dwell in booths. Well, they would do what they mean by booths. They take branches. They would break down these branches on the tree and they would build huts of, and they would live inside these green huts of branches for seven days. Yeah. That your generation, verse 43, that your generation may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booze when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. So there's your Exodus layer, okay? But the third layer, for us the most important, is the Davidic layer. From the time of the Davidic kings, the kings assumed the rights of this feast of booze to celebrate their royal enthronement. Yes, and why not? right? It is the great harvest day when all of the food is gathered in, yeah? And the people of God are rejoicing, much like we have fall festivals today, yeah? And all, it's the tables are heavy laden with all of the vegetables and all of the fruits which have been gathered in. And so, of course, the king says, let this be my festival, yeah? My festival, when everyone's happy with what I've provided, but what is interesting for us is not so much what the Davidic kings did with the feast, but more importantly, how this impacted the messianic hopes of the people. It is important to remember that with the fall of Jerusalem, as the Babylonian exile set in, there appeared to be little to no hope in the restoration of the throne of David. The kingdom had fallen. The kingdom was lost. 2 Samuel 7 appeared to have failed. The people, therefore, began to refocus their hopes, their vision of restoration away from the earthly kings that had caused such a disaster. And they began to refocus their hope, their vision upon the Lord, hoping that somehow 2 Samuel 7 would indeed be fulfilled that God indeed would intervene in what had taken place in some way. In some way, God himself would become their king. Turn with me to the prophet Zechariah. And there you're going to see um, this, uh, um, this hope of God's people um, revealed. Zechariah chapter 14 We'll just skip. We'll just grab a few verses here. But I was just, you go back and read Zechariah 13 and 14, okay? Yeah. So Zechariah chapter 13 and 14. But here we're on 14, verse 8. 
on that day, whenever you're reading the prophets, you read on that day, it's when the, the Messiah comes, when all things are restored, right? When the, when the foreign oppressors, oppressors are cast out. On that day, living waters, hello, listen, Christians, on that day, living waters shall flow from Jerusalem. In verse 9, and the Lord will become the king. Verse 16, then everyone that survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and they will keep the feast of booze. It was believed among the Jews of the time that when the Messiah finally came, all other feasts would cease and the feast of booze in which they lived in booze for seven days in which they took branches of palm and waved them in the air. Yes, celebrating the entrance of the king that this feast and this feast alone would be celebrated when they chanted Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This feast and this feast alone would remain. Just a side note, if you're thinking about Palm Sunday, you're right. Because while the Jews should have been preparing for Passover, they knew that if the Messiah came, Passover would go away. In the midst of their preparations for Passover, they throw off those preparations and begin to celebrate the feast of the entrance of the king. And it's at this moment, my brothers and sisters, at this moment, when Jesus has turned to Peter and Peter has confessed him to be the king, that it happened. At the announcement that he is the Messiah, the king of Israel, he took them up to the mountain of victory, to Mount Tabor. And on the eighth day of the feast of the enthronement of the king, Jesus begins to reveal who he truly is. We're going to bring up a, a, a picture just to help us with our with a kind of vision of this. Tim Gray poetically explains it starts with Jesus's face, which begins to glow with glory. Not only his face, but his raiment became dazzling white as well. And then the Father, the creator of the world, begins to speak. This is my beloved son. We're going to stop for just a moment, guys. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to just take a little 30-second break as I have we're, we're right in the, in, the, in the midst of it. There's so much to cover here. But I'm going to ask Amy Giuliano to just spend about five minutes with us and, um, and, and speak about this icon and the imagery here, because I think it'll be very helpful and very interesting to all of us. How are you doing, Amy? Good. Thank you, Father. This has been enlightening. Amy is our, is, our, is our graphics designer. She does all of our social media work at the Institute of Catholic Culture, and she is a, 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 an art expert. Um, and so we're bringing her in. So Amy, let's bring this icon up and um, and just give us a little bit of a tour of it. Show us what it's all about. Sure. I just wanted to compliment Father's talk and his exposition with something for our visual learners out there. Um, Peter, if you would play the video, people could see some uh, details of this particular piece and I'll just describe it quickly. And then once the video is over, we can go to the, the still image of it. Um, so what you're looking at is a very famous Byzantine icon. It's attributed to an artist called Theophanes the Greek. Um, it was created for a cathedral dedicated to the transfiguration in Russia. So quickly, I want to look first at the icon's composition with you. Um, we see that the scene is divided into two zones, two registers. You have three figures above 
And you have, uh, so Christ, uh, Elijah to the left and Moses to the right. And below you have the three disciples. So two registers, three figures each, the upper and lower. Um, and this layout of the icon kind of shows a contrast, a really interesting contrast between you know, the, the beauty and, and mystical order that surrounds the transfigured Christ and then the kind of chaos <laughs> at below of the disciples who are scattered across the bottom. You can see them here, the lines and curves and protruding limbs kind of going in every which way. Um, and it's this, this breakthrough of uh, heaven into uh, earth, like the heavenly realm into the earthly realm, into the natural world. Peter, if you could go to just the still image, that might give them even better resolution. That's the next slide. I'll keep going while he grabs that. So the geometric shapes that you're seeing, these geometric shapes and, and, and rhythms of that upper register, you see that at the, at the top there, um, you see a six-sided star and two concentric circles. Uh, they're trying to capture something of the unnaturalness of the light or the fact that this is actually a heavenly light. So the light of this theophany, it's often described in the theological tradition as uncreated light. It's not the light of the stars or the moon or the sun. Um, it's something different. It's divine light. Uh, and we notice that there's no light source in the icon, no shadows across the ground. It's just this uncreated light that's kind of reflecting in that bluish way um, off the crags of the mountain, off the apostles' clothing. Um, the circle represents the bright cloud of the spirit that's overshadowing Christ. And this word overshadowed, um, it's not used so often in scripture, but we see it used here. We also see it used at the Annunciation when the spirit overshadows Mary. Um, so a cloud is something that usually obstructs light from getting towards us. But this cloud is full of light. Um, and we see that towards its center though, it, it's becoming like a darker blue. Do you see that as it gets closer to Christ? And this darkening towards the center of the cloud, it represents kind of our inability to probe into the mystery that is God. It's this cloud of unknowing. We're also going to notice that Christ's clothing, the, the gospel calls it his raiment, is radiating light. It's bright white. It's um, not only his face and his body are shining, his clothing becomes whiter than any fuller on earth could bleach it, right? Um, so this white clothing, it's affirming the capacity of matter to bear and manifest divine glory, which is a really key part of the, the transfiguration. Um, and Orthodox theologians point out that Jesus's clothing is his adornment. And the word for adornment is cosmos, the cosmos. It's where we get the word cosmetics. <laughs> and so um, adornment, ornament, cosmos, that's what it is in Koine Greek. So uh, Jesus's transfiguration, it reveals not only what we're called to be as human beings, to be elevated to, to union with the divine nature, it's also revealing that the entire cosmos, God's adornment, will be restored and it will be transfigured in Christ. Um, 
We also notice still in the top register there that there are these three mountaintops. So Jesus is on Tabor, Mount Tabor, which we just saw. Um, we see Elijah to the left, he's on Mount Horeb, and Moses to the right, he's on Mount Sinai. So um, we also see in the uppermost corners, you can see these little blue vignettes, uh, we see angels who are summoning Elijah and Moses to witness this theophany um, at the transfiguration. So it's interesting because it's the culmination of their longing to see God. So Elijah, Elijah he, he searched for God on Mount Horeb. And if you remember, um, he hears him revealed in the still small voice. And Moses famously asked, God, I want to see your face. Let me look upon your face. And God says, no, I'll pass by and I'll allow you to see my back. But here, here in this moment at the transfiguration, uh, Elijah and Moses are witnesses to the fullness of divine revelation at long last. So what they had been hoping for culminates here. Um, Moses, you see him holding the law. And Elijah is gesturing towards Christ because he foretold his coming. So the two represent the, the law and the prophets. Um, and both of them are kind of bowing in reverence um, as they discuss with Jesus what he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Uh, we'll notice if you've ever seen the baptism icon, you'll notice that Elijah is in the same position where we see John the Baptist in the baptism icon. And this is because uh, John is the one who comes in the spirit of Elijah. So there's that kind of connection there. Um, Moses and Elijah are also representing the living and the dead. We know that Moses died. And in scripture, we hear that the archangel Michael uh, fought with Satan over the body of Moses. Um, so we know that he, he died, but Elijah was taken up into heaven. So the two of them represent the living and the dead who are all there gathered to witness this event. Um, we're looking at the upper register that really shows Christ in glory. Uh, and theologians like to say that the real miracle of the transfiguration is not that Jesus showed himself in this way. It's that he was able to kind of keep a lid on this radiant glory, um, this glory that was his from all eternity, the real miracle is that he's able to conceal that during his earthly life. Okay, moving to the lower register, we see that the upper part of the icon and the lower are connected by these three blue rays of light. And they kind of shoot out from Christ. And where do they reach? If you look, you can see that they go straight to the eyes of each one of the disciples. And this allows the disciples to see beyond the veil, to kind of experience this event to the extent that they have the capacity to, to, to witness it. Um, these rays of light, they kind of indicate that the disciples are, are, are bound to Christ. They're under his care. And we see that the three of them are kind of bent over and they seem to be almost kind of comically almost falling down the mountain. Um, Peter's on the left. He's gesturing towards Jesus. Uh, he's saying, let us build three tents. Um, and we see John, 
who's always, I just wanted to note, always beneath Jesus in these images. Um, it's because he's placed underneath, uh, because he's directly underneath Jesus at Golgotha. So he's the one disciple who makes it to the bitter end and stands beneath Jesus at Calvary um, at the foot of the cross. So he's witness to Christ's glory on Tabor um, and on Calvary. So we always see him directly beneath Christ. Um, and James is on the right. He's kind of covering his eyes, you can see. And he experiences like this sacred thrill or ecstasy. Um, there's a real sense with the disciples of powerlessness. Um, they're not just weak, they're literally fallen human beings. And we notice that um, they aren't wearing shoes or sandals. You can kind of see that. And in some icons uh, of the transfiguration, you'll see a little variation where their sandals are flying off their feet. Um, and it's to let us know that they're on holy ground. So one final note on the icon, uh, there's kind of this um, intimation of Christ's suffering already in this moment of glory. So the, present of, the presence of the uh, three apostles, um, these three in particular, and the detail that we have from the gospel uh, that they were almost overcome with sleep and they were roused by this event, this theophany, it kind of already alludes to the garden of the agony. So if the transfiguration, as Father was saying, is kind of a preparation for the passion, Gethsemane is where Christ will even more imminently prepare for his suffering. So we have the three disciples who were overcome with sleep in the garden here as well. Um, and again, along that theme of suffering and darkness, we, we see in this lower register some blackness of darkness. Um, it's contrasting the whites and the golds that you see above. Uh, there's this underlying darkness. You can see this small, these two small fissures in the side of the mountain, and they you just see blackness beneath. They give kind of an ominous sense. Um, we also notice that Christ is wearing black in the two little vignettes on either side that show him leading the disciples up and down the mountain. So we remember, uh, as Father again was just mentioning, as he ascended the mountain, he had just spoken plainly to his disciples about his death. And to the right, as they're descending the mountain, we can see that the disciples, they're kind of reluctant to follow Jesus. They, they, they retract from him a bit and gesture backwards, um, almost like this longing to stay in that moment of ecstasy. Um, and in the scriptures during the descent from Mount Tabor, um, Jesus had again spoken about his death and resurrection. I think they say um, the disciples were kind of naturally fearful. They were questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Um, so the icon reminds us that the transfiguration kind of has a context within the darkness of the world. We're, we're reminded that there's another deep valley ahead as we see the three, three of them with Jesus descending. Um, it's a valley of demonic forces, of, of weakness. Um, it's the road to, to suffering, again, as Father said. So just to conclude, because I know we're tight on time, um, I wanted to just 
add one more point about this particular icon. It's really interesting, or I found it interesting, to note that in the past, every iconographer began um, his career as an iconographer with the icon of the transfiguration. So it was the very first icon that they would write. Um, we call it writing an icon because uh, instead of painting, it's considered more of a form of prayer than a form of art. Uh, there's a belief that the iconographer's hand is kind of guided by God um, as he works. And icons of particular biblical episodes, they don't show too much variation. You're going to see them as largely unchanged across the centuries. Um, it's not due to a lack of creativity on the part of the individual artist. It's really a faithfulness to the iconographic tradition that's been handed down because each icon is a visual sermon. So in order to deliver a really theologically correct sermon, in order to pass down that same teaching from generation to generation, um, icons of the same episode are going to use very similar elements uh, that communicate this message. And that type of repetition, it just guarantees that a consistent theological message closely tied to the biblical text is going to be communicated. But all that to say, why do iconographers traditionally begin their work by writing an icon of the transfiguration in particular of all the different episodes? Why the transfiguration? And I'll end with this point. It's because icons are meant to be windows into heaven. I love that. Windows into heaven. And so the role of the icon is to be a kind of mediating image, um, an image that mediates between one world and the other. So icons, they mediate a breakthrough of the divine into the natural realm for the viewer, for those who are praying with them. So the transfiguration itself um, as an event was a window into heaven. The veil was removed and it allowed eternity to almost spill into time. Um, and iconographers see this event of the transfiguration as really evocative um, of the role that icons play in the life of the faithful, this removal of the veil, a little window into heaven. Beautiful. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. Very helpful. I hope that was that was helpful for all of you guys as we're preparing for this beautiful feast. Um, but I'm going to just do our last part of our Bible study here uh, before we conclude. And, and as I've been stressing maybe uh, over and over again, how important it is that this moment is seen in the context of the gospel as the answer to the fundamental question that the Jews are asking. Um, and uh, and here we can now enter into that second layer of that divine layer. We're invited to lift up our gaze, to begin to see, um, to see through our Lord's eyes, begin to hear the divine answer to Jesus's question to Peter. And to see this, uh, we must bring in one final Old Testament prophecy in addition to 2 Samuel 7 that fired the imagination of the Jews who were looking, expecting, and yearning for the coming of the Messiah and caused them to wonder about the nature of the restoration of the Davidic throne. And that is Daniel chapter 7. For those that will be attending Mass tomorrow, this is the text um, that you guys will be hearing it, at church. Um, so I hope this is, is helpful for you in your preparations. Daniel chapter 7. Um, and in Daniel chapter 7, uh, Daniel has a vision of heaven. Yeah. And uh, in that vision, we'll begin with verse 9. 
verse 9, Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. As I looked, this is this is Daniel, as I looked, thrones were placed, and one that was ancient of days took his seat. His raiment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame with its wheels burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came forth before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. We'll come down to verse 13. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Remember that. There came one like the son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom and kingdom that are that are all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed on the clouds of heaven. One like the son of man coming, riding to the ancient of days. Now flip back your Bible to Matthew Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Notice now what Jesus says. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that the son of man is? Now, I got to tell you that in preparation for this Bible, say I've never read this verse this way until I was reading the lectionary cycle and saw Daniel 7 in its light of it. Notice what Jesus says. He doesn't say, who do men say that I am? He says, who do men say that the son of man is? Yes. Who did you guys expect to come as the Messiah? Who do you do you think that Daniel 7 was talking about? What did you expect him to look like? What did you expect the Son of Man to look like? Riding on the clouds of heaven, he takes his apostles and all of us and ascends up to Mount Tabor once more. No longer now looking from an earthly perspective from that, but from that of the heavens. For in this moment of wonder, in this moment in which the apostles are struggling to understand who Jesus is, the Lord, the King, not only of Israel, but the King of the universe, takes them up to the highest mountain, a place literally touching the heavens. And in this moment, look at chapter 17, verse 2. And he was, as he was transfigured before them, his face shone like the sun and his garments became white as light. And behold, there appeared with them Moses and Elijah talking with them. And Peter said, and said to Jesus, Lord, it is well that we are here. If you wish, I will make three booths here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. As he was speaking low, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice of the cloud came, this is my beloved son. My brothers and sisters, we are invited in this moment to begin to see what does it look like as that cloud descends upon Jesus and the apostles? What does it look like but that Jesus is indeed riding on the clouds of heaven? And in this moment, the Ancient of Days appears and reveals that this one is his divine son, the son of David, the man before them the one born of Mary is also the son of God and king of creation. At this moment, Luke tells us something very strange. If you turn with me to Luke chapter nine, Luke chapter nine, verse 32, Luke chapter nine, verse 32. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but they were awake. Really? The moment of the transfiguration, would you have 
fallen asleep? At the moment when God was revealed before you, would you have fallen asleep? Modern commentators will say that it is due to this arduous climb up the mountain that the apostles were fatigued and tired and could not remain awake. But this is, of course, far from the understanding of the fathers regarding the mystery of the transfiguration, who all see in this falling asleep an entrance into the divine rest of God, the ecstasy of heaven. St. Gregory of Nyssa explains the vision of God lulls to unconsciousness every bodily motion. The soul becomes able to receive the vision in a divine wakefulness which is a pure and naked intuition of this, of, his, of this loving presence. All of this, of course, must be understood in light of the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the day of solemn rest. And it is on this day, the day of the enthronement of the king, on the Feast of Booths, that Jesus reveals himself and the apostles enter into the solemn rest of God, Archbishop Raya explains this moment beautifully. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Christ shone with such divine radiance that the disciples could not bear to gaze directly at him. The intensity of the radiance of his divine presence swept them away, and the brilliance of his beauty absorbed all their attention. They could not endure to think of any other thing or see any other reality. They were in ecstasy. The notion of sleep, as mentioned here, is admirably suited to the expression, the disciples' experience of ecstasy in the presence of Christ. The immensity of his glory attracted all the powers of their faculties, synchronized and harmonized them into unity, and centered them on one unique object, Christ in glory. The disciples were completely oblivious of everything else. There is no better expression than the word sleep to describe such an intense concentration. We could spend all evening on this feast. There's, there's so much here. The appearance of Moses and Elijah, Peter's desire to build the booze and remain on the mountain rather than return to Jerusalem for the passion. But, but I think for the sake of time, we can bring all of this to a conclusion with one final and critically important aspect of this mystery, and that is its application to us, to our lives. It's meaning for all of us who are entering into the celebration of this feast. As with all of the feasts of the Lord, all of the mysteries of the incarnation, the great mystery, the great revelation, the good news is not so much a mystery and revelation of God, but a revelation of what God has prepared for us. As I've said before, it's no great wonder that Jesus healed the blind, healed the lame, walked on water, multiplied the loaves and fishes. It is no great wonder that Jesus rose from the dead. He is the eternal God. The great mystery of the life of Christ is that in him, mankind, once again, is restored to our original nature. As St. Augustine reminds us, rejoice, rejoice, for you have been made not only Christians, but you have been, become Christ himself. Christ, uh, Tim Gray explains that on Mount Tabor, Jesus reveals God the Father's desire to transform humanity into the likeness of divine glory. The aim of the transfiguration, Grace says, the aim of the transfiguration is not simply to give a glimpse of Jesus's divinity, but to give a glimpse of true humanity, a humanity that reflects the image and likeness of God in glory. On this feast, 
In the Byzantine tradition, the chanters in the church will announce the good news in this way. Today, Christ on Mount Tabor has changed the darkened nature of Adam. And filling it with brightness, he has made it godlike. The Feast of the Transfiguration is our feast. It is the day on which we remember the brilliance of the white robe shining like the sun that was placed upon us when we came forth from the saving font of our baptism. It is the day when we hear the words of our Heavenly Father spoken to us. This is my Son, my Chosen One. My brothers and sisters, this feast is our feast. Let us rejoice in the gift of God who has overshadowed us with his divine glory and restored us to his divine image and likeness and crowned us once again with the crown of glory. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. You were transfigured on the mountain, O Christ God, and you shone your disciples as much of your glory as they could hold. Let your eternal light Shine also upon us sinners through the prayers of the Mother of God, O giver of light, glory to you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Wonderful. Thank you, Father, for that incredible presentation and uh, all of the work. I know that, you know, I had seen it blocked off in the calendar. I know Father put hours and hours and hours of preparation into this and and, uh, and was able to pull a lot together. It's incredible. So thank you, thank Father, you. for sharing that with us. Thank you. Father, unfortunately, uh, had to had to run real quickly, but um, Amy is still here. Amy, would you be open to taking a couple of questions on the icon specifically? Because we have we have a couple that have come in. So would you mind just like taking two or three minutes here? Cause we've got a couple, a couple of these. Okay. Awesome. Paul is asking if you have, if uh, there's any significance to being barefoot, cause you did mention that they don't have shoes here, but what does that, what does oh, that mean? Sure, sure. They're standing on holy ground. So uh, Moses was asked to remove his sandals before the burning bush. And here there are different minor variations but some in some some icons of the transfiguration you'll see that they're just barefoot that's what you see here and then uh, in other icons you'll see that the sandals are kind of flying off and um, again it's that combination of this is holy ground uh, but also there's a sense of the the fear and kind of a holy fear and they're they're um they're falling down there's also that kind of linked in as well that's awesome thanks okay then a couple of other you know quick little symbols i'm going to pull the in the actual icon back up against sure, yeah. reference point somebody's asking about the scroll that christ is holding oh sure the trees that are coming out of those dark spots if you mm -hmm. Yeah, so the scroll, uh, that's the, uh, it indicates that Christ is the logos, the word made flesh. So he's rolling, he's holding the rotulus, the scroll, to indicate that he is the divine logos. Um, 
And the trees coming out of these little fissures in the rock, I mentioned the, the blackness and how it's kind of ominous, uh, the, the black colors of the fissures and that, that darkness. Um, the trees, I have read different things about it. Scholars kind of go back and forth. Some scholars do think that, and these are art historians who think that the trees are um, subtle indications of the tree of Calvary or the, the coming suffering. Um, or some other people think that it's a sign of kind of the withered creation that's waiting for its complete restoration in Christ. That's awesome. I love it. Wow. Yeah, this is a, a language that many of us are not familiar with. But of course, Amy, you know, it's it's an incredible gift that you're able to unpack that for us because it is uh, full of meaning. Um, and and so many of us, you know, might see an icon like this, and uh, to hear it explained uh, like that is is incredible. And and it's like like any language, right? It's not just limited to one book or one sentence. You're going to see things like this pop up in other icons, like you mentioned, Amy. You know, various patterns. John always being directly underneath. So uh, it, it's always incredible to get a little bit more of that language of the tradition that visual tradition uh, of iconography. So thanks for thanks for taking a couple of minutes here. I, I had seen those come in, um, but uh, we are out of time. Uh, so we're going to wrap up there. Um, Father typically would close us in prayer, but he is doing that with his parishioners um, by saying Vespers this evening and, uh, and had to run because of the time. So we're going to close it down just with uh, a prayer ourselves. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. O Christ, transfigured on the mountain, have mercy on us. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.